The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, it is uh, such a wonderful blessing and privilege to be able to uh, introduce to you this evening our speaker for tonight, Dr. Ligon Duncan III who uh, is all the way up from uh, Jackson, Mississippi. And uh, we're very grateful that he's uh, made the trip all the way up here to uh, Toronto to be with us tonight. And uh, very blessed that he's here. For uh, those of you who don't know, I'm going to introduce a little bit uh, about uh, who uh, Dr. Duncan is. I'd not met him personally before enjoying a wonderful dinner with him this evening and been very blessed by that with some of my colleagues and uh, Michael Haken. Uh, who is here again with us uh, tonight. Although some of you will have encountered uh, Dr. Duncan in his prolific uh, writing career and have been blessed by his uh, written materials already. But Ligon is a native of Greenville, South Carolina, and was born born and reared in the home of an eighth-generation Southern Presbyterian ruling elder. So watch out. Be on your best behavior tonight. And he received his uh, MDiv from uh, Covenant Theological Seminary, studied systematic theology at the Free Church of Scotland under Professor Donald MacLeod. Many of you will have heard of him, of course. And he earned his PhD from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland in 1995. So he's from my neck of the woods, really. And uh, he served on the staff of Covenant Presbyterian Church of St. Louis from 1984 to 87. I'm just giving you the highlights here. In 1990, he was ordained in the Presbyterian Church in America, that's the PCA, and joined the Faculty of Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, where he was chairman of the Department of Systematic Theology. He became the senior minister of First Presbyterian Jackson in 1996, which is a church of over 3,000 and uh, thriving. And uh, Dr. Duncan is very well known for his tremendous preaching of the Word of God, and that's why we've invited him here uh, this evening to be with us. In 2004, he was elected the moderator of the General Assembly of the PCA, the youngest minister to serve as moderator in the denomination's history. Ligon and his wife, Anne, are the parents of Sarah Kennedy and Jennings. So we're just really thrilled to have you with us this evening, and so grateful that you've come up today, Ligon, to minister for us. Let's welcome Dr. Duncan with us tonight. It's a joy to be with you. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to the book of Jonah. Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, if you're looking. Uh, the last time I was in Toronto, I was trying to remember, was um, as, a, I think, a late teenager. We, the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America had been held in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and we had jointly held the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America along with the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod, and maybe the Reformed Presbyterian Church in North America, the Covenanters, the Psalm Singers. And we'd all done our general assemblies. It was held at Calvin College. And my father, as an elder, had been involved in local arrangements and was there to help the local presbytery sort of pull off this joint general assembly. And he decided that we needed to see Canada after uh, after the general assembly. And so he, he drove us... Uh, to Toronto, and we spent a few days here. But um, it, it has been that long since I've been to, to Canada. I've followed um, this particular summer fellowship for several months now as I've been looking at your website and watching the advertisements go out about it, and I'm thrilled at what you've been studying in the Minor Prophets. And I'm thrilled that whereas the other speakers have, given, have been given the assignments to preach very small texts, I've been given the assignment to preach the entire book of Jonah. Now, you know, this book is so rich. Honestly, sometimes you're reading in the Minor Prophets, admit it, and you get to certain parts of them, and you think, you know, Amos could have used an editor. 
You know, you could. I've, he said this before. I'm going to scale it down, and you know, but Jonah is chock a block with action, and there's not a wasted syllable in in the book from the standpoint of the development of the whole story. Now, every word of scripture is given by inspiration, and even those parts that are slow in Amos are there for a reason, and God has edifying purposes. For us in them, we know that because Paul said all scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man, woman of God might be equipped for every good work. But boy, is Jonah a glorious book. Now before we read this book, I want you to be on the lookout for a few things. The, the book comes very easily and clearly in two parts. Chapters 1 and 2, and chapters 3 and 4. Chapters 1 and 2 are about Jonah in the deep. Chapters 3 and 4 are about Jonah in the city. Chapters 1 and 2, Jonah at sea. Chapters 3 and 4, Jonah in Nineveh. But even with that obvious parallel... 1 and 2, 3 and 4, Jonah at sea, Jonah in the city. Within the stories, there is a three-part parallel. Do you notice that in chapter 1 and in chapter 3, the first thing that happens is Jonah is called by God. In chapter 1, he's called by God to go to Nineveh, and he says, no. After he is spat up on the seashore by the great fish in chapter 3, he's commissioned by God to go to Nineveh again, and he goes. But there are two calls, chapter 1, chapter 3. And there are two encounters of Jonah with Gentiles. In chapter 1, he encounters Gentile sailors, non-Jewish Sailors, two parts, two kinds of people in the world in the Old Testament, Jews and everybody else, Jews and Gentiles, Jews and pagans. And in chapter 1, he encounters pagans. In chapter 3, when he goes into Nineveh, he encounters Gentiles. In both cases, the Gentiles repent. Just hold that in the back of your mind for a little bit. Both cases, chapter 1, chapter 3, the Gentiles repent. And then third, as you read through chapter 1 and 2, chapter 3 and 4, the two parts of the book, notice how Jonah responds to his deliverance in chapter 2, in, in chapter 2, and how he responds to Nineveh's deliverance in chapter 4. The responses are very, very different. And the different responses clue you in to what the great message of this book is. Because Jonah is not only a prophet of God, declaring God's word to his people and to the Ninevites, he is a prophet whom God is declaring his word to, and Jonah is sometimes very reluctantly responding to that word. Well, before we read God's word together, let's pray and ask again for his help and blessing. Heavenly Father, this is your word. We need it as much as we need food or drink, because we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We ask then that as we read a book about a man who lived almost 3,000 years ago, that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful truth in your word. This we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the word of God. Hear it, beginning in Jonah 1. 
Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us. On whose account this evil has come upon us? What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then... The men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord! Let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish saying I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol I cried And you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. 
I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay, salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned away from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, 
and he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Amen. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth upon all our hearts. You see what I mean, don't you? Every, every line is gold. There, there's, there is hardly a sentence in this book that couldn't be a sermon. Would, wouldn't you love to hear your pastor just expound this one sentence? Salvation is from the Lord. You think he'd run out of things to say to you? in a sermon on that theme? I don't think so. Or even, even Jonah's answer to the sailors when they say, who are you, where are you from, what is your occupation? His answer, I am a Hebrew. I serve, I worship the Lord who made the sea and the dry land. There's, there's a sermon series in that answer. You could profitably study the doctrine of worship out of that one sentence and not exhaust it with many, many words. And so you understand that being given the task to preach this whole book is like throwing a preacher in Br'er Rabbit's briar patch. There's a lot here. So let me confine myself with you tonight to three great themes that we see in this book. Repentance, the mission of God, and God's great heart of compassion. I want to look at those three things with you very briefly tonight. It's very clear that this is a book that is concerned to address the issue of repentance. There are three repentances in this book and one notable non-repentance. There are three notable repentances in this book and one notable non-repentance. The first repentance we encounter, very frankly, shocks us, doesn't it? Jonah has been on a boat with pagan sailors. And these sailors, in the midst of the storm, have been calling out to their pagan gods. But when they confront Jonah as the one upon whom the lot has fallen, and they ask him who he is and what he believes and why it is that his god might be trying to kill them all, suddenly... These pagan sailors are doing what? Look with me back in chapter 1 again and see what they do. Verse 14. Therefore they called out to the Lord. Now that is, that's not Lord generic. You know, sometimes we use the word Lord generically. 
to, to refer to God in general, but that is the name of God, that is the real God, that is the one true God. Suddenly these pagan sailors are calling out to the one true God and they're begging him not to bring destruction upon them. Oh Lord, let us not perish. These pagans are calling out to God. The next repentance we meet is Jonah's own repentance. Jonah, just as our brother reminded us from Psalm 139, had forgotten what Psalm 139 teaches. And he had fled from the presence of the Lord. And having fled from the presence of the Lord and found himself in the belly of a great fish, you know what he feared most? He feared never experiencing the presence of the Lord again. And so he calls out from the deep and he cries and he begs for God's help and rescue and forgiveness. And then just as when God created the world in Genesis 1, how did God create the world? He spoke it into being. God speaks to the great fish and Jonah is brought out upon the seashore. The third repentance that we meet in this book, we meet in chapter 3 from the Ninevites themselves. And again, it surprises us. Jonah goes in with a message that sounds like anything but grace. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Mm, that's a winning sermon series. That'll bring him in. And they all heed it from the least to the great. They all heed it. And they repent. And they call on God to spare them the destruction that he has threatened and he does. And then, of course, the notable non-repentance has to do with Jonah at the end of the book. But we'll save that for our second point. What I want you to see, though, is in each of these cases, isn't it interesting that the repentances don't come until the individuals realize that their lives are at stake. The sailors, Jonah, and the Ninevites. And isn't it like that with us sometimes? We love our sin so much that it is not until we are up to the point at which our sin is going to destroy us that we turn from it. And I want you to think about that tonight. You know, the very first of Martin Luther's 95 theses was that the Christian life, the whole Christian life, is to be a life of repentance. And so much repentance is significant not only for conversion. It's not only essential. If you, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ tonight, if you haven't trusted in Christ as he is offered in the gospel, one thing you must do is repent. Without repentance, there is no hope. You will not experience the favors and blessings of God while you are happy in your sin. You are you are reveling in your own idolatry. You may not be a pagan sailor headed to Tarshish, worshiping a polytheistic pantheon of gods, but you have just as many idols if you're not trusting in the one true God through Jesus Christ. And so repentance is a gateway for you away from that idolatry and back into God's presence. But even as a believer, repentance is so essential to our sanctification and our growth in grace. 
Think how often the great moments of growth in the Christian life are tied to our repentance. I had struggled with a besetting sin for 20 years. It was a sinful anger that was expressed in ways that probably most people who knew me didn't see. And it very often hurt deeply people that I loved the most. I had wrestled and prayed and hated that sin and pled with hot tears for it to be taken away. And yet it defeated me over and over again. On July the 30th of 2009, I was walking in the middle of the night on the beach in Perdido Key, Florida, and I was having a conversation with God about that sin. I was talking out loud. I'm really glad no one else was around because they would have thought a crazy man is on the beach, call the police. But the, the words in my head were so vivid that it was almost like speech. And the picture in my head was so vivid. The Lord was holding up, as it were, in a hand, my sin, and asking the question, whose is it? And I would answer, mine. And that conversation repeated itself for an hour that night. The hand would hold out the sin. The question would come, whose is it? And I would verbally, audibly answer, mine. Why? Because though I hated that sin, and I knew it was sin, I wanted to blame it on somebody else. It was somebody else's fault that I was doing that. I was looking to excuse myself, to rationalize my sin, to, to provide an excuse for my behavior. And I believe that in that hour the Lord was confronting me with that act of self-justification. And he just kept holding that sin up before my eyes. And finally at five minutes of 2 a.m. on Thursday, July the 30th of 2009, when it came up, and I don't know how many, 50 times, 60 times the question had come, finally I screamed, it's mine! And it was almost like I heard the words, not anymore. And that, that sinful impulse was instantly taken away. Now, I'm, I, I don't share that story to try and be mystical. That's the only time that's ever happened to me in my life. I don't share that story to discourage you about your battles with besetting sins because the Lord may not answer your prayers for victory over the sin in some dramatic way. It may be fighting incrementally in step after step after step over years and years and years before you get victory over those things. I share those things to say that until I owned that sin... That sin owned me. Until I owned that that sin was mine and it wasn't anybody else's, until I repented, that sin owned me. And if there's one thing that the book of Jonah makes very clear to us, is that God will not allow us to stay in the idolatry of our sin and experience the blessing of his fullness. Because you understand that every sin is an act of idolatry. Whatever it is that we're doing or seeking, whatever it is that we're after in our sin, you understand is a substitute for the satisfaction that only God can give. 
so that in every sin, some, let's say there's some desire that you have, that you long for, and you long for it more than God, it may be something that he forbids. It may not be something that for, he forbids. It may be something that's perfectly good. But if you care about it, if you love it more than you love him, it's an idol. And so the sin itself is an act of idolatry. And this book makes so, so clear to us the absolute essential character of repentance. In conversion, yes, but in the Christian life. I trust that as a people, you will be great repenters. You will not attempt to cover your sin by hiding it because it's still there. But that you will confess it to the Lord. And that you will find him to be gracious in his forgiveness more gracious than you could have possibly imagined. You know, you live in the wake of the revelation of the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. These Ninevites had no idea about that, and yet they staked their lives on the hope that God would be gracious, and he did not disappoint them. I promise you that no matter what your besetting sin is, there is no sin repented of that can separate you from him, no matter what it is. He is gracious. He's given his son for you. The second thing I want us to see in this passage is what it teaches us about mission. Why does Jonah not want to go to the Ninevites? Well, he tells us point blank in chapter 4. He tells us that the reason that he didn't want to go to the Ninevites is because he knew that if he went, God would forgive them. Now, I think that speaks of two things. On the one hand, I think it speaks of the Jewish attitude towards the Gentile world that prevailed. And remember that the era of the minor prophets was one in which that issue of separation from the world was alive in the minds of Hebrew people. But they had deduced from the holiness of Leviticus and the separation from the world that God had spoken of through Moses, they had deduced a wrong principle of attitude towards the Gentiles and towards the nations. And this book speaks of that. But I think that it also reveals something else to you about Jonah. Why would Jonah not want to go with his prophetic word to the Gentiles in Nineveh? Well, all you have to do is look at Nahum chapter 3. Nineveh, and just look at what Nahum says. Have you studied Nahum yet, Michael? Have, have we gotten there? Is that, is that coming up? It's coming up. Well, just, just hold, your, hold your horses for Nahum because he lays it on Nineveh thick. Nineveh's sin is great. It is a great stench coming up to God. And Jonah knows of that prophetic curse against Nineveh. But there's yet one more thing I want to bring about. Jonah wants his own people to repent. And here God is sending him to Gentiles. And I think Jonah is saying, Lord God, do not send me to those Gentiles. I want your people to repent. And isn't it irony that in the end, Jonah won't repent, but the Ninevites do. Now, my friends, take that into the life and ministry of Jesus. And in light of what our brother reminded us about what Jesus says in Matthew 12, 38 and following, you want a sign, you're not going to get a sign, but the sign of Jonah 
And then what does he go on to say? Nineveh repented under his preaching, and there's one here greater than Jonah, and you have not what? You have not repented. You see, Jonah is already foreshadowing the hardened heart of Israel who though they had all the privileges of the word of God and the revelation of his mercy did not repent and yet these pagan Gentiles when they hear one fire and brimstone message yet 40, day and 40 days in Nineveh will be destroyed they repent en masse. And Jonah knew it was going to happen. And he didn't like God's will. He wanted his own people to repent, not those pagan Ninevites. Well, my friends, we, we don't get to choose God's plan in his providence for the fruitfulness of the gospel in this world. But we must rejoice wherever that fruitfulness is displayed whether it's in our own neck of the woods or not. And I think there's a word for us in Jonah's attitude. You know, Jonah's attitude, he's, he, he, he can have mercy on a plant, but he can't have mercy on these Ninevites. There's a word for us in that. You know, I am, as, as, as your pastor has said, I'm a, I'm a conservative Presbyterian from the United States, and I'm from a Presbyterian denomination, and... Uh, I, I, I believe in Presbyterianism. I believe in the Westminster Confession of Faith. I wish there were 250 million Presbyterians that believed in the Word of God and the gospel of grace and the sovereignty of God and the theology of the Westminster Confession of Faith. But as I, as I travel around and I see what God is doing in the world, it's so often not in my neck of the woods. And I can find myself saying, well, Lord, why don't you prosper my denomination? Or why, why don't you prosper my local church? Why, why, is it, why is it those guys over there? But I've, I've realized if, if God calls me simply to be, you know, if, if I can just be an encouragement in some small way to what is happening, for instance, right now in the Southern Baptist Convention in the United States, if I can be some encouragement in some small gospel way to the gospel work that's going on there. That may be what God is calling me to do in life. It may not be some great work that he has planned in my own backyard. We don't know what God plans to prosper in this world, and we can't control that. But it is our duty to pray that the earth would be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, and if, if the flame of the leadership of Christianity passes from the west to the east or from the north to the south, we have to not only praise God for that, we have to do what we can to help fan the flame. Who knows what's going to happen in our world? But God's will is going to be done. And we want to rejoice in that. We don't want to be grudging in that. We want to have an attitude that we want to use our resources to encourage faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, even if they're not in our denominational neck of the woods, but they hold high principles of Scripture and high views of Christ and high views of grace, high views of God. Yes, we want to see the Word of God prosper in their midst. I think Jonah reminds us of that. There's one last thing that we learn from Jonah. And it's this. There has never been a preacher of God, no matter how consecrated or compassionate, who is as gracious and compassionate as the God he preaches. You remember when God sent Moses to be the deliverer of the children of Israel. And Moses said, Here I am, send somebody else. That's the story of Exodus 3, isn't it? 
Here I am, Lord. Send somebody else. What's the message there? God loved his people more than Moses loved his people. And what's the message here in Jonah? God loved those lost pagans far more than his preacher that he sent to preach the word of hope, the word of God to them, loved them. You know, your God is more willing to forgive you than you are to ask him to forgive you. Your God is more compassionate than you can conceive. This book makes it clear that he, he, is, he is not some ogre in the sky waiting with fiendish delight to cast thunderbolts down upon unsuspecting people. He is looking for an excuse to show his compassion. And Jonah can muster up compassion for a plant, but he can't muster up compassion for the Ninevites. But God can. And not only that, God can give his own son in the place of those Ninevites. And you and me, like them, as I suspect most of us here tonight are Gentile Christians. No matter what our nationality, no matter what our background, we are all, most of us, pagan. There may be some Jewish Christians here or those of Jewish descent who've come to faith in Christ, but probably most of us are from Gentile pagan backgrounds if you go back far enough. And God gave his son for lost souls like us. You will never overestimate his compassion. And if you've ever seen his sin, if you've ever seen your sin, and you've ever seen what your sin deserves, you will need to believe that. Because when we see our sin, just an inkling of what it is, if it were not for his compassion, it would drive us to despair. And isn't it interesting that reluctantly, Jonah, though he doesn't show that compassion himself, manages to throw in bold relief for us the loving, saving compassion of Almighty God. Repentance, mission, and compassion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together in your word. We ask that you would bless it to your glory, to our everlasting good. In Jesus' name, amen. We were talking about the God having the perfect word. Yes. What, what's with that funny ending? Well, don't you think that the contrast to his utter delight in the plant and then God's remark, okay, you care about the planet more than the people and even the cattle. I mean, it's ironic, don't you think? You care about that plant more than people or animals, by the way. So I think it adds to the irony of the, it, it adds a punchiness to God's rebuke of Jonah because Jonah doesn't realize how, how inverted his priorities are.
about the sign of Jonah and Jonah being in the belly of the whale for the three days and Christ being in the earth and raised on the third day. Um, there, the commentators debate a lot about what the sign of Jonah is. Is it the preaching or is it being in the belly of the whale? But one of the things that they all agree upon is that the analogy to be true and helpful does not have to be exact. So that Jonah doesn't have to die in order for that to provide an analogy of Jesus dying and coming to life. And I think that's a helpful observation. Yeah, good. Why does the story of Jonah figure so prominently in the thinking of people like Tyndale and I'm thinking Luther and a number of other reformers? They seem a number of them at that time seemed to have a real obsession with Jonah in particular, and I'm just wondering why they thought this story was so much more valuable than some of the others. Well, I know that the the emphasis on the mission of God to the Gentiles as it is revealed through the prophet Jonah from the time of Augustine, I think. Isn't that right? Doesn't Augustine take that tact in interpretation? And then it's picked up by Luther and Calvin and others. It's very, very important in terms of their, their missiological view of the gospel going uh, out the world. It fits in with the idea of justification by faith uh, through, uh, by grace through faith alone in Christ alone as a part as, as opposed to the Jewish ritual system under Moses and so it fits in with that Reformation emphasis of the gospel of God's free grace to the Gentiles I will try to speak my English is a little but uh, I know all Christians are uh, God call us for give a testimony, testimony for him, no? What, uh, what, uh, cons consejo, alguien me ayuda, consejo, que consejo? What uh, advice you give us, uh, all Christians here, for no care plans and start to care person? The question is, what advice to give to you on giving your testimony or sharing the gospel? What Help me on the question. I want to make sure I get it right. Uh, todos los cristianos, todos, todos los cristianos somos llamados a testificar de Dios, aun que no queramos. Eh, ¿Qué consejos nos daría para empezar a cuidar personas y no plantas. Okay. You were saying that uh, we all as Christians are called to, to testify and what do we, we do I mean, to, to really uh, testify uh, to people rather than plants? Sí, para que dejemos de cuidar plantas y empecemos a Oh, okay. Instead of of taking care of plants, we take care of people. How do we do that? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm still not sure that I know how best to answer the question because I'm not sure I understand the question fully. Um, I, I mean, if, w when it comes to the issue of, of having a concern, if, if the reference is for us to care more about people than than Jonah did, who cared more about plants than he cared about people. Um, one is, obviously, that we want to really care about the everlasting well-being of the people that we encounter. Not just, not just their temporary, temporal well-being in this world, but their eternal well-being. Um, you know, there's a great deal of emphasis in the world today on Christians relieving current suffering. And John Piper recently said at the Lausanne Congress on World Evangelization that Christians care about all human suffering, especially eternal suffering. So that means that no matter what good we're doing to society, 
along with that good with which we, and we want to do that in society. We want to engage society. We want to, uh, we want to be a blessing in the city and the culture in which we're planted, but we also want to care about the everlasting well-being of people, and that the only way we can adequately do that is by the ministry of the gospel, and that has to be done with words. And so praying for your pastor in his evangelistic endeavors, cultivating evangelistic conversations in relationships with people, praying fervently for specific people in your neighborhood, in your family, in your community to come to faith in Christ, all of these things we need to cultivate a greater love for people. Hi, uh, I noticed something that seemed like a difference in Jonah's responses or w what he does in chapter 1 and chapter 4 in relation to the Ninevites, and, well, I guess in the first case, the people on the ship, yeah. uh, the Gentiles uh, repenting. He's willing to die so that God wouldn't destroy them in the ship. So he's willing to lay down his life, in a sense, for them so that they would be saved. Yeah. But then in chapter 4, he would rather die than them be saved from yeah. destruction. So I'm wondering if there is a real difference there. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah, if you could there, speak to that. There may be, uh, the, the commentators argue about that, there may be, or it may be that in both 1 and 4, you are getting the same kind of response that Elijah gave in um, 1 Kings 19, I just want to die. And at that point, it may be, sure, go ahead and throw me over the boat because really all I want to do is die anyway. And then as he is swallowed by the big fish, he has some chance to think that over again. And, and he realizes that he's wrong. And, but you don't get to that resolution in chapter 4. It's left open-ended. And I think... It's left open-ended in order to be more piercing to the Hebrew people as they read it because Jonah is them. And it's, it's God's way of getting through his prophet to them. By the way, that means that when your pastor is preaching to you convicting, piercing sermons, recognize that God is having to do that work in his own heart. And so just pray for him. Because that's the way that God prepares a pastor to preach to your heart. He breaks his own heart. And, you know, I wish, in, in some ways, you wish you had the sequel to Jonah. And you, you really hope that, boy, I hope you came around on this and understood this. But it is, it is a sweet providence that the Lord Jesus talks on more than one occasion, at least two occasions, about the sign of Jonah. Isn't that a glorious thing that Jesus would be so kind to take up the sign of this prophet who was at some point so unfaithful as his sign to his generation. So. The last verse contains an expression, I'm not quite sure what it clearly means, it's describing the Ninevites. And there are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left. What yeah. does that mean? It, it, it is an estimation of their confused moral condition. I mean, you, can't you hear a Hebrew who has the Mosaic law, um, who has the temple ritual in which the Psalms and the, and the Word of God are read over and over, and as he looks out at the Gentile world, what does he see? Lawlessness, and that lawlessness leads to moral confusion. And so God's description of them morally is... They don't know up from down. They don't know their left hand from their right. These are seriously confused people, and you have no compassion for them. Jonah, what's the matter with you? You know, so, yeah. The, the question is, what, what about, you know, servants? The, the, what's the difference between serving the Lord willingly and being a servant who's sort of pressed into service of necessity? And clearly there's reluctance on Jonah's part to serve the Lord here like he's supposed to. It kind of reminds me of what my father would say to me when I was a boy. If I'd been bad, he'd reach for his belt and he'd say, son, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. <laughs> and I knew what the hard way meant. And usually I chose the easy way. And I think Jonah is a picture of um, you know, the, the, 
if, if the Lord has called you into his service, you're going to serve him one way or the other. We can do it the easy way or the hard way. And, you know, Jonah, Jonah had to learn the hard way. Um, and there are so many servants of the Lord like that. We could, we could talk about Moses. We could talk about Peter. We could talk about Elijah. I mean, we could go down the list of servants of the Lord that were mightily used of the Lord but didn't always operate out of the highest motives or the most instant faithfulness. Um, now, that's not an excuse for us to not want to serve the Lord willingly, uh, but I think it is a good warning to us. And it humbles us, too, because it reminds us that in the end, we're the Lord's servants, and it's our privilege for him to work through us. He's going he's gonna to accomplish his will. And the only question is, are we going to get the blessing of being a part of that? Uh, or are we going to reluctantly go along and lose the joy uh, in that uh, and not serve him with our own, own whole hearts? But sure, wholehearted service. At, Jonah's being critiqued for not having that in this book. It's very clear. He's being criticized for not being wholehearted in his service. Yeah, now there was another, yeah. My question is regarding the repentance of the sailors and the Ninevites. What kind of repentance was it? Was it unto salvation or maybe just temporal, avoiding yeah. temporal judgment? Co commentators have been debating that for 2,000 plus years, literally. And I mean, you can imagine why. I mean, understand, um, suddenly these polytheistic sailors are calling out on the name of the Lord. I mean, commentators, and it's very short, you know, it's terse. It's just, it's, it's a, a brief description of a larger narrative. And even, you remember, uh, at one point the sailors say, and we know that the reason that you're here is that you're running from the presence of the Lord because you told us so. But if you look at what Jonah said to them, that wasn't recorded in the narrative. So there's a lot of stuff in this story that's not recorded for us that mm, we would really love to know more about, you know, did they go to Tarshish and establish a, a believing colony there that survived to the time of Jesus or something like this? You know, we would love to know the nature of that repentance. And the other thing is when you talk about, okay, you've got Nineveh, you've got 120,000 people in this city. You mean the whole city repented? And what did that mean? And, you know, what ramifications did that have long term? So there are all sorts of questions that tantalize us that are just not worked out in the book. And I think part, partly that helps us focus in on what the main message God is trying to teach us is, even though we want, to, we want a lot of other ancillary answers, God's focusing in us on some major points in the book by not developing those things. Here he is. I just uh, I see some insight into the in in that prayer where you can see the uh, probably the wrath of God in it. You can see other things, but could you give us more insight in that prayer from that prayer and what other passages? It's referring to yeah right as it's already been indicated that prayer is is made up of language that is found in a number of passages in the Psalms and I do think that that's a reminder you know you can imagine the distress that it would be for a person to be in the ocean in the belly of a fish and when he was and when he realized his sin what did he start doing he started repeating the words of the scripture back to God. And that's actually, that's a good pattern for us to just, to just plead the words of God back to God. And um, Daniel does that in Daniel 9. You remember when he discovers the scroll of Jeremiah and he finds out that the children of Israel are going to be in captivity for 70 years because of their sins against the Lord. And he realizes, boy, we're coming up on 70 years. He starts praying words from the Psalms of confession back to God because he realizes that the very same sins that the children of Israel committed in Egypt that are in, in Israel that led them into exile, they're still committing while they're in exile. So he uses the word of God to confess to God. And that's exactly what Jonah is doing. And I think that's a good, you know, praying the Bible, praying the words of scripture back to God 
that's a that's a good lesson for us to learn out of that prayer. There are lots of other lessons too, but that's one big one. Thank you. Let's just turn to the word of prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are merciful and compassionate. Slow to anger. Mm. And abounding in love, one who relents from sending calamity. Thank you that you are more compassionate, more gracious than any of us can possibly be. You love us and our neighbors more than we love ourselves or our neighbor. We thank you for that mercy today. Send us out, Lord, with a new sense of your grace and compassion in our lives and our need for a life of repentance, to walk daily with repentant hearts, that we might experience your mercy and your grace, which is boundless. Now the Lord bless you and keep you and be gracious to you and cause his face to shine upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.